When Donald Trump ventured out from his father's shadow decades ago, he probably did not expect he'd one day have his mugshot taken as he surrendered himself at a county jail in Georgia. But that's happening this week, and Mark Meadows is trying desperately to avoid the same fate. The Republican candidates for president are about to fight it out for distant second in the presidential race. Is it possible for this debate to unseat Trump at the top of the polls? A new poll in Iowa shows that the race is far from over, and this Vivek Ramaswamy guy isn't being taken seriously yet, but will tell you why a lot of what he's saying should be taken seriously, as in seriously dangerous sneak previews of future mainstream GOP positions coming soon to your dinner table or your office break room. Finally, we'll discuss a new take on why America has become so mean and what can be done about it. Welcome back to the podcast that helps you, the 54% of the country that votes for progress in every election, convince your conservative friends and family members to join our majority. This is Majority 54. All right, Jason. I mean, what a busy week. We got the debates tonight. If you're listening to this podcast, it would have happened last night, so you could test out our predictions. So we've got that. Uh, we also have uh, just a bunch of legal activity happening down in the great state of Georgia. Bail has been set for $200,000 for Trump, and he is traveling down to Georgia tomorrow to turn himself in and uh, gain some primetime coverage and step on you know whoever emerges victorious in the debate today. What do you make of this? Uh, you know, I mean, look, I don't want to be the guy who gets into the petty stuff, <laughs> but, but they're going to take his mugshot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and look, I think it is, well, this part's not petty. It is one thing to be running for president as an indicted criminal, or at least a, an alleged criminal and, and an indicted uh, person. It is quite another thing to not have it just be this ephemeral thing that's out there that he gets to talk about, he gets to frame, but like when every time there's an ad about it, every time, every time it's going to be referenced now in by an anchor who's going to have a little picture right up to the to the like screen left of their face, there's going to be a mugshot of like I don't think you can really underestimate how powerful that is. That makes it much more real. I think that matters. Now, the more petty part is that, you know, when Ronnie Jackson, Dr. Ronnie Jackson, Captain Ronnie Jackson of the Navy was putting out Trump's height and weight uh, to the world, um, he was doing it as a guy who wanted to go back to Texas and run for Congress as a Republican. And now somebody who doesn't presumably want his endorsement to run for Congress is going to publish his height and weight. Wait, and they take I feel your bad. weight when they oh, take Oh, yeah, your... yeah. Wow. And, and I feel bad about being petty about that and I know it's wrong and I'm sorry I know we will get I will get tweets from people saying you know don't even mention that kind of thing even if it is Trump but this is like one of the worst Americans in history and that as Al Franken well, likes it. to say includes several people who own slaves and uh, uh you know I think he deserves it so okay I'm debating I know there're going to be some upset listeners here but I just yeah, I know myself. I shouldn't say this, should we, but it's should we, petty, but I, and I, this is how I feel. But while we're here. Uh, because I know he's we, sensitive about it. That's why it's, that's why. Look, uh, he's made fun of other people about their weight, Rosie O'Donnell, exactly. et cetera. Actually, every, literally everybody, including Ron DeSantis. Right. I mean, I, I feel like we can't go on. He ashamed people for being too thin. I, he's done the whole thing. I feel like we can't go on without making a, a guess here. 
Oh God! <laughs> People are gonna get mad. Okay, maybe we just not. We shouldn't do it. make a guess. It's too much. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I'll, we'll move uh, on. We'll move on from that. But okay, uh, that's wild. I do think he's gonna do the whole smile for the mug shot. As people will be like, "Oh, he's so shameless." And well, as we'll get to, that's become a part mm-hmm. of his brand. But uh, we already have some mug shots here. Uh, John Eastman has already surrendered, and we could throw his mug shot up on the screen. I mean, this is jarring to see these people. In the sheriff's, you know, custody, mm-hmm. one at not a time. Good, we're we're gonna get Giuliani. Not good lighting. Not yeah, good lighting. It's not, not friendly lighting. lighting. You know, um, not. And I guess Giuliani. By the time this podcast probably airs, Giuliani's mugshot will be out there. Um, Giuliani. Uh, Trump is headlining a hundred thousand dollar per person fundraiser for Giuliani down in Bedminster on September seventh. For any of you who want to attend. Uh, his legal legal fund, right? Legal fund that Trump <laughs> Trump just didn't pay his bills, uh, but now is doing a fundraiser. He's doing him a solid, unbelievable. Uh, I'm going to start doing that with my bills. I'm going to be like, look, you know, mortgage company. I'm not going to pay my mortgage, but look, if you need me to show up to your kid's birthday party, <laughs> I'll be there. You know, we'll yeah. see how that works. Like, you call you call your insurance company. I haven't been paying my bills, but I will be holding. A, uh, a car wash for your insurance company on this day, you are yeah. welcome to make people aware of it because I'm doing my best out here. Yeah. Uh, a GoFundMe. Uh, Giuliani uh, is showing no regrets. This is uh, him, I think, earlier today. Uh, it was either earlier today or yesterday uh, being asked about whether he regrets any of his actions. Let's go to this clip. Uh, to Georgia, and I'm feeling very, very good about it because I feel like I'm defending the rights of all Americans. As I did so many times as a United States attorney, people, people like to say I'm different. I'm the same Rudy Giuliani that took down the mafia, that made New York City the safest city in America, reduced crime more than any mayor in the history of any city, anywhere, and I'm fighting for justice. I have been from the first moment I represented Donald Trump, an innocent man who has now been proven innocent several times. I don't know how many times he has to be proven innocent. And they have to be proven to be liars, actually enemies of our republic, who are destroying rights, sacred rights. They're destroying my right to counsel, my right to be a lawyer. They're destroying his right to counsel. It's not accidental that they've indicted all his lawyers. Never heard of that before. In America, all the lawyers indicted. Now, whether you dislike or you like Donald Trump. Okay, let's break this one down. Uh, Two funny things and one serious thing. One, uh, I don't believe him that he is feeling good about it. No, I don't either. Um, yeah, I don't think that's true. Uh, obviously, Trump hasn't been proven innocent. He hasn't been proven guilty yet either, but he hasn't been proven innocent. But the last thing, um, I had not heard this before, Ravi, that they're indicting all the lawyers as an argument. And I, I suspect our listeners will hear this a lot, that, that that is proof that there's this conspiracy or the fact that they keep indicting Trump's lawyers, which supposed, I guess Giuliani's point is this is really crooked because they're indicting the lawyers so there's nobody who can defend him. Yeah, well, they're not indicting all the lawyers. There are plenty no. of lawyers who decided not to go along with this, uh, including lawyers within the government. His own attorney general has been mm-hmm. on TV basically throwing him under the bus. Uh, it, Trump has had many, many lawyers over the years, uh, most of whom are not involved in this because a lot of them, no matter you know, how loose their ethical standards were, were smart enough to know that this was not a great look for them. Uh, so I, I think that's and, false. Well, and I think it's important for people to know that 
it's not like it's not like your lawyer automatically can't be indicted. Your lawyer can be indicted if your lawyer participates in the furtherance of a of a criminal act or conspiracy. Right. Like, yes, you have privilege with your lawyer. You can tell your lawyer anything. But if you tell your lawyer that you're about to commit a crime or you ask your lawyer to help you commit a crime, that is not privileged. And they can yeah. be made to testify about that. Breaking bad for you listeners, like just think about Saul or better call Saul. Like Clearly, like, there's a reason why, uh, spoiler alert, Saul winds up in witness protection because he uh, committed some crimes and he abused the, uh, the, his legal practice. And, you know, like, there's all these scenes where you come in there and he's like, you know, basically saying, like, we, we have to use the privilege to talk, but they're using the privilege to further a criminal conspiracy in that show. And just like in that show, like in real life, if you, if you, if I'm a lawyer, Jason, and, or you know, more likely, you're my lawyer, and I come to you, and and I'm like, hey, like, uh, I need to like work through my legal strategy because I've been accused of this crime, and I and I want to be, I don't, I don't want to have to be careful what I'm saying. And the privilege would, would protect that, right? Like, let's say I'm I'm accused of robbing the convenience store on my corner, but if I came to you and I was like, Jason, I want to rob the convenience store right. on the corner. Tell me how I can get away with it. Then your privilege doesn't count in that case. And this is the latter. You know. And if I help you, I'm a co-conspirator. You can even yeah. come to me and say, hey, I've been arrested because I robbed the liquor store on the corner. And that's privileged. Yeah. But I'm worried I'll be arrested because tomorrow I'm planning to rob the liquor store. Not privileged. Not privileged. And, and and so it, it, this is going to come up, and people need to know the. Yeah, difference. and this is worse than the, even what you said. This is, this is. Hey, uh, I need you to like help me understand like the ways in which I can rob this liquor store that that can mitigate my damage. Like, yeah, you know, like, like, is I there? Need you to come up with a way to. Yeah. I need you to make <laughs> a plan to rob a liquor store. Is what right. he did. Right. You know, right. I mean, it's like I, I'll drive the car. You, he's pretty much where Trump is. He's like, I'll, I'll try to be there on time to drive the getaway car. We'll see if I make it. Um, well, this see. comes also as the, uh, the, a key witness in this case, um, or at least in the, um, the documents case, like in this, you know, relevant to the superseding indictment from Jack Smith down in Miami. This is an employee of former President Trump changes grand jury testimony this week in documents after, or at least it was reported that he did this week after the Justice Department raised questions about a conflict of interest for his lawyer. Essentially, Trump was paying for his lawyer. This is very relevant to the Giuliani stuff. Trump was paying for his lawyer. That lawyer was giving, you know, you know, once again, some truly horrendous malpractice going on here. It sounds like a lot of people should lose their licenses, but uh, this lawyer was basically advising this this gentleman, I think Yusil Tavares, uh, to you know, basically do things that were against his interest. Jack Smith's team kind of told him that. And we're like, hey, I'm not sure you want to be giving false testimony. Uh, and by the way, who's this lawyer? And this guy got a new lawyer and then retracted that testimony and appears to have been a key witness, uh, at least in the superseding indictment. Which goes to show the, the whole Teflon Don thing, like they're chipping away at that. Like yeah. they are getting people to cooperate. Because, you know, you could go to a Trump rally and you can interview people and they can seem very dedicated. 
but even the most dedicated Trump people don't actually want to spend their a good part of their life behind bars. Like they right. just don't want to. And now that's a very real thing that can happen. Yeah, there's also this situation going on with Mark Meadows. Like, because you had mentioned the last time, Jason, like, how come we haven't heard from Mark Meadows? Looks like we've got an answer. Mm-hmm. So what is he? Okay, so he declined to testify. Explain this to me a little bit. He he was basically trying to have it both ways, like a politician would. You know, he was he was basically answering questions behind the scenes. It wasn't like he was eager. It wasn't like he was offering up more than was being asked. But he was essentially answering most of the questions that were being asked of him, wasn't being very public about it, thought he wasn't going to get charged. Like his essential strategy was, from what I understand, there are different kind of theories about how to handle things like this. One is don't talk to anybody. The other is if you have nothing to worry about, talk to them and give them what they need and then they'll leave you alone. Uh, And then the third is lie to them, which is never good. And so he... There was a question of what was going on here. And obviously one of them is like actually cooperate, uh, which we don't have any reason to, th- I mean, cooperate and for a, a deal, right? So like a super right. version of number two. We don't have any reason yet to think that he's, he's working on a deal, but it looks like he did opt for the, you know, basically tell them what they need to know uh, and kind of make nice and hope that they'll leave you alone. And perhaps that worked with Jack Smith, like, because Jack mm-hmm. Smith has, like has not, uh, charged Meadows yet. But I think, you know, and what this New York Times article points out is Meadows' strategy uh, kind of fell apart because of the Georgia move. Like, like whatever nice he was playing with the with Jack Smith and Jack Smith's office wasn't relevant to Georgia. And now he's, you know, totally in the crosshairs there. And a question, you know, we still haven't heard enough from him. Like, they, they've filed to to get this move to federal court, but he hasn't been, at least from what I could tell, as public as Giuliani and some of these other people have been. That could change like overnight. But you know, it's a big question is well, what, what he's he going to do? Because he was the guy, you know, next to Trump throughout a lot of the sort of key moments, so he could have a lot to say. I think it's also interesting to think about who Mark Meadows is in terms of his motivations here, right? Like he's not a guy who became, who got into all this because he followed Trump into it, right? Like. I mean, yes, he got into the conspiracy laden stuff and he got into the trouble because of Trump. But like prior to that, Mark Meadows was a member of Congress, right? And I believe he was, I think Freedom he was head Caucus. of the Freedom Caucus. Yeah. yeah. And so like Mark Meadows had his own Mark Meadowsness, independent of Trump. And like a lot of people, he went, huh, I think I could take a shortcut right up to the top by going with Trump, right? Like I'm, I'm chair of this, you know, well, relatively influential uh, caucus um, in the House. But I, I, he didn't start as like a MAGA guy. He started as a Mark Meadows guy. And then he went, well, okay, I'll go be chief of staff after uh, what Mulvaney or whoever like flamed out and, and flamed out meaning like wouldn't do the latest terrible thing that Trump wanted him to do probably. <laughs> and so, so then he's like, okay, I'll go do this. I'll take a shortcut to power. And that's why it doesn't surprise me that Meadows has not been one of the people who's been willing to go down with the ship because Meadows doesn't see Trump as the reason that he's on the stage. He feels like yeah. he has his own thing to, to worry about, and so he's going to be more protective of himself. And I think now that he has the possibility of, of actually going to prison for this, uh, a prison in Georgia, I think, I think he's going to be uh, really helpful. 
I would imagine. Well, you know, the, the you know something I mentioned last week is just continue. We should continually remind ourselves about this Georgia case: is that there just aren't pardons being dangled in the background because Trump mm-hmm. doesn't have that power if he gets elected again, and that changes the fundamental structure of this whole case. And you know, it's interesting. I mean, you see these people like Giuliani. I mean. This is probably why Trump feels the need to hold these fundraisers, pay people's legal be- bills, et cetera. It's like he's got, you know, like he's got to go the distance now and with these people and he can't just like throw a promise their way. It's He's just a mobster, man. I mean, like at the end of the day, I remember not to like be obnoxious and quote myself and be like, I called it because like a lot of calling it when it comes to Trump over the last several years. But I remember... uh tweeting like at the very beginning of the Trump administration, like early 2017, when everybody was aghast at the idea that he kept hiring family members. And, and I remember like, I remember saying, and and it's funny because it's the thing I tweeted and I see this come back to me occasionally in memes where people put it as a quote. I said, uh, Donald Trump doesn't, or I said, mobsters don't hire family members for their qualifications. They hire family members because they're less likely to talk to the FBI. And, and, that's that's what this is like all you need to understand the trump world the trump political world which so many parts of of the american uh, media are still trying to understand it through a political lens right they're all well he's making this pivot why is he doing this you that's just the wrong lens it's organized crime it's Mm -hmm. always been organized crime and so like holding fundraisers to continue to make your co-conspirators um feel uh, you know, that they owe you. Well, that's just basic organized crime stuff. It's protection. He's just running protection for people uh, so that they're beholden to him. It's the same thing it's always been. Yeah. And, you know, and going back to this Giuliani quote, like, you know, he, he, he it's so weird because he was a great U.S. attorney. Like people will debate his mayoralty for sure, but even people who didn't like him as mayor will admit that he, he did a lot as U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and in many ways made that office what it is today, took down key figures in the mafia. It's just hard to square that figure with who we, who we see today. And you could see he's grappling with it because it clearly bothers him when people say he's changed. <laughs> yeah. You know, like he's, that's clearly like the, you know, um, Marty McFly, your chicken comment to him. It's like the <laughs> thing that gets him a rise out of him. And this and idea, it, his story is, I'm just for justice, no matter where it is. It's an amazing line. It's also important to remember that, like, this is Rudy Giuliani going to Trump world and becoming full on MAGA and being the guy who comes out, you know, in 2016 and makes the joke about, we we're just back there in the locker room, you know, after the Hollywood access tape or whatever, access Hollywood tape. That was a change, but people forget that this guy's been a chameleon for a long time. Rudy Giuliani was a pro-choice, uh, pro-gun control mayor, right? Like he was, he was a, a Republican because, like, he was a Republican by New York City standards, right? Yeah. I mean, like, like in those time, in those years when he was running as a Republican, if you had picked him up and just moved him to Missouri and said, "Okay, go run for office," he'd have been a moderate Democrat, right? And and so. I think it's it's important to remember that like that he's always been a chameleon chasing power, um, and perhaps the answer is is that 
at some point in his life, he figured that the shortest distance between him and power was through the mob, meaning taking them down in his role as U.S. attorney. And now, and then now it's like, oh, it's through the mob, as in joining the Trump organized crime racket. Yeah, we used to have a saying. I mean, we used to call them Giuliani Democrats mm-hmm. in Staten Island, where I grew up. There were a lot of them. Uh, but throughout the city, honestly, like he, you know, he won a Democratic city. He won it twice, you know, and mm-hmm. the there were points where he was super, super popular. I mean, there's a, I mean, there's a lot to examine in his record, which is not what this podcast is about, but it is, a, you know, just yet another tragic story. Well, okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, we're going to hear from some sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about the GOP debate. Then we'll uh, look at some new, very fascinating polling coming out of the state of Iowa. Uh, Jason's going to take on Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, and then we're going to talk about whether we as Americans have become more mean. All of this and more when we come back. This episode is sponsored by Roan. If you're like me, you understand the pains of finding what to wear. Most clothes are uncomfortable. They may be too tight. They never, you know, actually fit your size because, you know, a lot of us are not exactly small, medium, large, extra large. We're complicated. Sometimes when you find something you like, you can only wear it for a few hours before that important meeting or dinner, and then you have to change it into something else. And everyone wants to dress their best. You want to look good at all times. And frankly, it's a confidence booster. So here's the deal. Men's closets were due for a radical reinvention and Roan stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection is the most comfortable, breathable, and flexible set of products known to man, and here's why. Roan helps you get ready for any occasion with the commuter collection, which offers the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, and polos. You never have to worry about what to wear when you have the Roan commuter collection. And here's some anecdote. I'm wearing my Roan pants right now. And last week I was at a wedding. I wore my Roan uh, button-down shirt to the wedding at a formal wedding and I will also wear it tomorrow when I just you know go into a coffee shop to have a meeting it's that versatile so it's time to feel confident without the hassle with Roan's wrinkle release technology wrinkles disappear as you stretch and wear the products it's that easy yeah I actually you know not so neatly folded that shirt in my bag for the wedding and I was able to take it out and Automatically, I was able to put it on. It looked like I had ironed it, but I didn't. You know, it's an inside secret between us. So with Gold Fusion anti-odor technology, you'll also be smelling fresh and clean all day. On top of that, Roan is 100% machine washable, so you can dish the dry cleaner all together. We're on the move a lot, and the Roan commuter collection has never let me down. The versatility and overall comfort of the collection is undefeated. I absolutely love it. And even after I wear it all day, I feel super fresh because that Gold Fusion fusion anti-odor technology at that wedding i was dancing up a storm wore it no problems so the commuter collection can get you through any work day and straight into whatever comes next so head to roan.com majority and use the promo code majority to save 20 percent off your entire order that's 20 percent off your entire order when you head to roan.com majority and use the code majority it's time to find your corner office comfort majority 54 is sponsored by lomi uh, i have a family that 
apparently creates a lot of waste. And when I say it that way, it sounds funny. We, we create a lot of trash, a lot of stuff that should go in the trash. And, and that means that when you have a lot of trash left over and then the week comes to an end in our area, trash gets picked up on Wednesday. Uh, you know, I, 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 most of the time I feel pretty guilty about it because I'm like the guy out there with multiple bags and I got to like ask a neighbor, can I put it in your spot? Or I've got to get one of these tags from the city and I put that in my trash that says I paid for this extra bag. Uh, but Lomi transforms all that extra garbage into gold at the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns food scraps to dirt in under four hours. And now I am that guy that I remember from my neighborhood when I was younger, the kind of strange guy who loves composting. But now I don't think it's strange. Now I just think it's it's awesome. Yeah, it's it's like made cooking at home even more fun because when there's food waste, oh, awesome, that goes into the compost even better. Uh, so there's no food rotting in the garage and smelling up the or, or smelling up the kitchen. Uh, thanks to Lomi, I only have to take out the trash this once a week, and it's hassle free, and I don't have the embarrassment of like everybody's using my extra bags. I get to help the environment and make my life easier. All of my food scraps, my plant clipping, uh, even those those leftovers that I forgot in the back of the fridge, they go back into what would be my garden if I have a garden, but instead, you know, they go into making the grass be a little bit greener. Uh, and it helps me grow... Uh, should I start a garden? More nutritious food uh, right in the backyard. So whether you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just grow a beautiful garden, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash Majority54 and use the promo code Majority54 to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash Majority54 and use promo code Majority54 at checkout. Thank you, Lomi, for sponsoring this episode. All right, Jason, tonight, which is Wednesday, we're going to have this GOP debate on Fox News. Given that a lot of our listeners, for the pod at least, will be hearing this after the debate, let's test out our predictive skills here. Just one prediction from you about what you think is going to happen in this debate. Uh, one prediction is that Chris Christie is going to horribly embarrass and dunk on somebody. I think probably Ron DeSantis at some point. And it won't matter for Chris Christie's numbers, but it will be very embarrassing and probably hurt the fundraising of the person that he does that to. I think, and I think if it's DeSantis, it'll become some kind of a meme. Okay, this is perfect timing for mine then. So my prediction is the counterpunch against Christie is going to be more devastating than the punch. Ooh, that's a good one. And that's one of the, any of these people could easily be like, oh, really? Like you were groveling for so many years at the foot of Donald Trump uh, for a cabinet position. You helped him with his transition. All of this happens. And then finally, at the end, you change your mind. Um, I'm just truly committed. But I think there's going to be a lot of quotes. There's going to be a lot of anecdotes that they're just going to throw right at Christie about Trump, it's, including it's his very presence on that stage, which is like his presence on the stage presumes that he would support Trump as the nominee, which I know is something that he's been trying to address publicly. It's interesting because given that you and I just had this conversation, we'll, it'll, be curious, it'll be interesting to see whether Christie's people and he have wargamed it out enough to where before Christie launches this attack on somebody, he, he does a disclaimer. He yeah, does and he, yeah. yeah, and he just is like, he's like, hey, look, I was like you once. But I have seen the way, you know, and which which would make that a lot harder to do. Now, in this world of like people only hear what they want to hear, that wouldn't that wouldn't mean that you couldn't just come back and be like, look, you're a hypocrite. 
because nobody really cares what the first guy said. They only put out the social media clip of their part of speaking. Yeah. Um, Which, by so, the way, yeah, is, the, is the most condescending way to, to address somebody. I, I had this happen to me recently when I was in an interview, and this, this guy who was interviewing me had like different opinions on me on education issues. And he kept couching everything as like, yeah, I, I'd been in your position before, and now <laughs> I've seen the light. And I'm like, well, okay, you changed your mind. Like, <laughs> That doesn't give you some authority. Like, yeah. uh, it's great that you changed your mind, but like, stop mentioning that every time. Like, it's just kind of said because, like, the 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 conceit of it, like the implicit is, oh, I'm you're just naive. I was young like you one day, and now I've seen it all. And I'm just like, well, I think it's a good point you mentioning that because because the people listening to this who want to have these conversations with conservative people in their lives, you have there's a fine line between. Uh, I used to be in your position and now this, which sounds like now I'm enlightened. And I think the more effective way, which this person that you're describing did not do, which is I used to feel the same way. Here's what happened that changed my mind. Mm -hmm. Or here, here's, what I, here's why I changed my mind, which is much more of like a, uh, I'm recognizing this is my own experience, but let me share it with you, as opposed to I used to be wrong and now I'm right, but you're still wrong. Right. Well, it's just hard. I mean, this final point on this, we, can't, we shouldn't talk about the debate too much. But it's just so many people that it just makes me wonder whether you can really have um, like a sensible discussion on the stage and, you know, update from Adam, injury report. Doug Burgum injured his leg. He may not stand at the GOP debate. Good. Uh, Interesting. So, okay, let me see if I can. Doug Burgum is the governor of North Dakota, right? I mean, I, I know that he's not the South Dakota governor. Yeah, so right. So, so, okay, my prediction, I will add a prediction, which is a lot of people will find out who Doug Burgum is tonight uh, who didn't know. And similarly, a lot of people will find out who Vivek Ramaswamy is tonight. And I think that'll be probably overall good for both of them. Yeah, well, I just want to keep reminding our audience, you heard about Vivek or Vivek, I guess, Vivek the fake. Oh, is it supposed it's to be Vivek? I heard somebody, I heard uh, Tim Miller correct somebody the other day that way. I think he would probably know better than many. Mm -hmm. um, but it's Vivek, and I think the the nickname somebody's given him is Vivek the Fake, which is good. Okay. Well, we'll get to Vivek the Fake, actually. Let's talk a little bit quickly about this Des Moines Register poll. Um, so this is the gold standard and seltzer poll. I have a lot of stories about it, but I won't Al Bundy this segment. The The... This poll is not good news for anybody other than Donald Trump. So Trump's at 42, right. DeSantis 19, Scott 9, Haley 6, Pence 6, Christie 5, Ramaswamy 4. Trump is leading DeSantis among evangelicals by 27 points, uh, probably for something other than his personal conduct, I'd imagine. 66% um, of Trump backers said their decision is firm as opposed to just 31% of DeSantis supporters. I think that's the key number. I'll say yeah. that again. 66% of Trump backers said the decision is firm, as opposed to 31% of DeSantis supporters. Uh, there is some good news for DeSantis. His favorability is somehow at 66% uh, compared to Trump's 65. So they essentially have the same favorability. I mean, that's wild, right? Like the whole, I'm sorry to interrupt no, you, yeah. but the whole thesis of the DeSantis candidacy is one that at, at once upon a time, was based upon a perfectly reasonable assumption, which is that people will want Trump's policies, but they will want it from someone that they like. And to find out that he is one point, 
less favorable than Trump at this point. I mean, that's like, just stop running, man. Just go be with your kids. Like, I, I mean, I'm not saying it's over, but like, it'd be me. I'd be like, well, that's our whole win scenario. So why am I spending this part of my life out here getting browbeaten and heckled when, I don't know, as a dad, like I overemphasize the whole, you have young kids, just go be with your young kids. Now that's probably particular to my life experience, but. Well, anyway. okay. This is a, this is an interesting point, And I think this gets to the debate tonight, which is, I think people are looking at this as like a, a straight up traditional debate. Who's going to, you know, who's going to rise, who's going to fall. I think of this as a very complicated uh, sort of choreographed moment where almost everybody on that stage is doing something different. Mm -hmm. So you've got certain people like Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, who are uh, potentially auditioning for vice president. We'll know for sure tonight and see how pointed they are. You've got people like Vivek Ramaswamy, who I think also is doing the same, but also setting himself up for future elections. So showing that loyalty, not taking two things far against Trump, but talking about his youth, yada, 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 trying to be like a demented version of um, Pete Buttigieg, right? <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, and he also probably has a cabinet position in waiting if, if Trump were to win. He's been sucking up to him enough. Um, you've got Chris Christie, who's basically just trying to damage Trump. You got Pence, who's trying to, I think, genuinely uh, try to like reclaim the moral high ground. Like, I think, I think he he is a true believer in the Almighty, and and feels like he he wants to do everything he can to, you know, achieve sort of. Yeah, uh, uh, Christie's Christie's looking for revenge, and Pence is looking for redemption. Yeah, there you go. Okay, that's a much okay. more efficient way of saying that. Uh, and then who the I don't know what these other people are, who are what they do. Like it's hard to say what Doug Burgum is trying to do. I guess other than recover today. Uh, so yeah, apparently, yeah. Apparently, he was just streaking for the end zone. I don't know what he was. <laughs> like when he but almost <laughs> the only person you can make an argument is actually trying to win this race outright right now is DeSantis and maybe Vivek Vivek. But DeSantis, I think, from what I understand, there's a lot of good speculation that DeSantis is, his camp is banking on Trump not uh, making it through the primary for reasons other than losing the election. Like the, the indictments catch up with him or something else. Actuarial tables, I don't know. Yeah. Um, no, that's... It gets to that weird moment with, with Hillary, not to pick on Hillary because she's been really good to me over the years, but she, if you remember like when she was really late into the primary with Barack Obama, and I don't think she intended it to come out this way, but she, she, would, she said things like, basically that were like, well, what if he died? Which is not actually, I don't think what she meant, but it kind of came out that way. And people were like, uh, that's like tasteless. But I think that's kind of like what is going on here is like, People are looking around and be like, oh, there's probably like a 10% chance the law catches up with them in time or life, you know, you know, the Grim Reaper Look, catches up with them. And like, I want to be left standing as number two, because like for all of DeSantis's problems, polling number two, given the stakes of this is not a terrible position to be in. It's terrible given where he started, but not objectively terrible. Look, man, when, when I ran for mayor in 2018. Um, I, when I got into that race, I kind of foot stomped the race cause I'd been getting ready to run for president. And there were, you know, I, I soaked up all the, a lot of the support and the endorsements and the money. And there were 
people who like wrote there was like one column that was like this race is over why is anybody else running and there were there were i think nine other candidates running and i didn't know it that i mean at the time i was like honestly i was like you know why why are other people continuing to run because i knew the polls and i was like we're gonna win this obviously um and and then quentin lucas who's been on the show who's the mayor of kansas city now who who i i genuinely like quite a lot um and is is i would consider a good friend quentin you know we had a, a nice conversation and he was like well i'm gonna stay in the race i was like okay and then you know the guy he won after you know i dropped out because of going to get help for ptsd but i'm sure at the time there were people who were like why is quentin still running Um, And so I guess the lesson is like, you never know what's going to happen. Like I didn't know that I was going to drop out and go get help for PTSD at the VA and, and not continue to run in that race. Um, So you never know. uh, We're talking about a 70 something year old man who eats McDonald's uh, and is, you know, doesn't exercise and doesn't exercise and has multiple indictments hanging over his head. Yeah. Like tons of stress. And, you know, so like, I mean, we're not like, like, we've already, we've already like, Talked about his weight. We're not trying to. We're what I think. We're just discussing why stay in the race, and it's because anything can happen. Anything can happen. Yeah. The flip side of what you're talking about is, I have a friend who was very close to running for mayor of Nashville this past cycle. We're in the middle of the race now. It's in runoff, and the incumbent looked like he was going to run again. He wound up not running, and my friend was in a really good position to win that race, but decided he didn't want to run against the incumbent. Turned out the incumbent shortly after that bowed out of the race, but then it became untenable for my friend for career reasons to jump into the race. And it's kind of the opposite of what, what Quentin Lucas did. It's like mm-hmm. he, he kind of psyched himself out, which is kind of a bummer. Uh, but now Nashville's ready for Freddie, for those of you in Nashville who understand what I'm mm-hmm. talking about. But shout out to both of them. I have two good friends running in that race, but one of them is almost certain to win. Um, fascinating you know you go through this a lot but it's like you you live long enough and you start to you remember these people when they like first ran for city council whatever like the first Mm -hmm. first week i came to nashville i went to this fundraiser for this guy who was like setting up a race for city council and now he's almost certain to be the next mayor it's it's really fascinating uh okay vivek vivek i keep saying his name incorrectly myself shame on me you you went at him uh recently on the on the x we call it x the x x and i don't even i'm just gonna call it twitter man like you know i can't i can't uh i can't learn the new names for all the stuff it's still facebook it's not meta or whatever um all right so there was this clip um where uh you know let's see in fact we have the video i believe so let's before we play this video i'll tee it up as this showed up on social media and people were talking about how condescending Vivek was to Caitlin Collins. And that's the exception that people took to it. I took something very different away from it that I think is more important. Um, So I think we have this clip. Let's go ahead with it. Guess what? We'll put a gun in every Taiwanese household, train them how to use it. That is how you make Xi Jinping think twice. Do you really think that would be a sufficient plan to deter a Chinese invasion if it includes long-range missiles, ground troops, an aerial blockade, a naval blockade. Caitlin. All of the different measures here. Caitlin, Caitlin, Caitlin. Of course it's not sufficient. You take that tiny little clip. When I've articulated at the Nixon Library last week, a one-hour speech with a whole range of deterrents, that is part of it. 
But I've also said that I would pull Russia out of its military alliance with China. I've also said that we would bolster our partnership with India to be able to close the Andaman Sea and the Malacca Strait. I've also said that we would actually send a signal very clearly that we will defend Taiwan, moving from strategic ambiguity to strategic clarity to say that we will defend Taiwan until we have semiconductor independence in this country. And so, yes, part of this is turning Taiwan into a porcupine. I think exporting our Second Amendment is a relatively free or low-cost way to do that. But I find it laughable that you will take that clip and then put words into my mouth as though that was a sufficient deterrent. Caitlin, with due respect, that's a joke, especially when I've offered as expansive of a deterrent strategy as I have. It's not putting words into your mouth, and it's not saying that you didn't say those other things. It's just saying that you did say that part of your effort when it comes to Taiwan is giving people in Taiwan handguns. This is really funny, Caitlin. It just is a, it's been very educational for me to learn how media works. Yes, that is important. That is, no one ever said that was sufficient to deter an invasion. Okay, so when people saw this, they were like, man, he was a real jerk to her. And he was a real jerk to her. There was a way for him to make his point that, hey, that's one thing I said. It's actually much more than that without being a jerk. So let's, let's go ahead and stipulate to that. But there's a couple of things in there that I think are really important. One. Uh, like apparently Vivek's policy on Taiwan is like, they matter to us and we will defend that country as long as we can't make enough of our own semiconductors. Like that's why, like, which is just kind of just immoral, right? Like that we will go to war over semiconductors, but we, but that ability, that willingness to go to war ends as soon as we have semiconductors. Now, part of that may be baked into some of our strategy, but you don't like that's not what you that's not what presidents say out loud that's a minor problem the more major problem and that what's getting missed is vivek ramaswamy is saying we are going to change our posture when it comes to taiwan and china we are going to go from where we are right now which is we rec- we don't recognize taiwan as this separate nation we don't recognize it as something that needs to be defended if if china decides to invade and instead he is saying without anybody seeming to notice that we are going to change to a policy to where if China tries to take Taiwan, then we are going to war with China. And he, and that's a big deal because he seems to be a guy who is doing two things. One, he is reflecting the overall vibe that he is getting from the Republican Party nationally, and he's just amping it up and trying to put it in more of a generational uh, sort of vocabulary. So this is one example of him being like, oh, I see that people like Josh Hawley and others are out there talking tough about China all the time. How do I talk even more tough? I'll just start suggesting that it's no big deal. We'll go to war with China over Taiwan, which is not a position the United States has held to this point. Two, he's also a guy who has been out there influencing what Republicans say. He was the first one to say that anybody who gets elected, if other than Trump, needs to commit that they will pardon Trump. He's, you know, he's, this is the kind of thing he's been out there doing. And so he is like a canary in the coal mine. Like we got to watch this guy. And it means that it's not that long before the Republican position becomes China is the enemy and it's no big deal to go to war with this other global superpower that has nuclear weapons and a ton of people um, because that will get a lot of American service members killed. So I I just wanted to flag that. 
I think you know I, I've long felt that he's 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 a relevant figure because he's a good campaigner given the dynamics of the Republican Party, and I think that's hard for people to wrap their heads around because it's so intellectually and morally bankrupt. But you, mm-hmm. he's like the T one thousand to the Josh Hawley T two thousand. You know, yeah. Like it's he is um, he's he's just an upgrade to the intellectual sort of veneer that Holly put on MAGA, right? And, you know, Holly and Vance tried to do this whole, like, I'm blue collar. I think Vance sells it better to give him a little bit of credit. Like, of the mm-hmm. three, like, he, no, he... He was a Marine. Yeah, he was a Marine. And he also, like, like for all the bullshit that's in um, Hillbilly Elegy, like, he did come from those areas right. where, like, you look at Holly and Vivek, like, Vivek, like, you know, Vivek's, you know, posting like these videos of him hitting tennis balls, which by the way, none of those balls went in. Like if you watch that video, <laughs> I talked to your wife about tennis yesterday. I don't know if she told you we were, we were game planning like her I tennis was there, training. Yeah, yeah. Um, watch that video closely. Anybody who knows tennis, all the balls are hanging left and he's just slamming them. But like you could, you could just any like somebody with just like a basic understanding of the trajectory of tennis balls, like it, it's just wild. There's like a reason why they didn't show the other side of those. Uh, but uh, other than that, like, but he's he's a person like we've we've gone through this. I think we've learned through this podcast and other places. Like you can make fun of people. You could think you could think they're like beyond unworthy of the office that they're seeking and understand that like Vance is a good example. We made fun of him. He was down on the polls. We left him. We, we basically talked about how his campaign was flailing and now he's a U.S. Senator. <laughs> so it's like, right. like we got to take these people seriously. And I think he had a back and forth also with somebody, you know, John Hendrickson, who I think wrote the profile of you in the Atlantic mm-hmm. um, for this Atlantic profile that Hendrickson did of Vivek. Oh, I and- haven't seen that yet. Oh yeah, so okay, there there was this dispute about whether Vivek was like floating 9/11 truther stuff. And uh, Hendrickson wrote about it. I didn't know that came then, from Hendrickson's thing. Yeah, and then Vivek was like, "No, I didn't. This is the same kind of thing that what just happened on CNN." Um and Vivek was like, "No, I didn't say that." And so then Hendrickson released the audio. And I think we can play that audio if we have it. What government agents, how many government agents were in the field? Right? You mean like entrapment? Yeah, absolutely. Why can the government not be transparent about something that we're using? Terrorists, or the kind of tactic used by terrorists, if we find that there are hundreds of our own in the ranks of the day that they were, that they were, I mean, look. Well, there's a difference between entrapment and a difference between a law enforcement agent. I think it is legitimate to say how many police, how many federal agents were on the planes that hit the Twin Towers. Like, I think we want it. Maybe the answer is zero. Probably a zero, for all I know, right? I have no reason to think it was anything other than zero. But if we're doing a comprehensive assessment of what happened on 9-11, we have a 9-11 commission, absolutely that should be an answer the public knows the answer to. Well, if we're doing a January 6th commission, absolutely those should be questions that we should get to the bottom of. Right? There can't be hush-hush separate. It shouldn't be outside the commission leaked to some media personality, the hours of footage. No, this is transparent. These are the doors that were open. Here are the people that opened the doors to whom? Here are the people who were armed. Here are the people who were unarmed. What percentage of the people who were armed were federal law enforcement officers? I think it was probably high, actually. Right? There's very little evidence of people being arrested for being armed that day. Most of the people who were armed, I assume the federal officers who were out there were armed. And so 
But I don't know the answers. We deserve to know the answers, right? We, we did people, we did a Jan 6 commission, there are certain questions you can't ask. We did a 9-11 commission, and there are federal agents on the plane we deserve to know. Okay, so now I'm really curious about this, because I hadn't heard that before. Um, and you can kind of hear uh, Vivek, as he starts to talk, realize, like, I didn't really think no about this. Think. Yeah, I have no reason. Yeah. This is like an unbelievable like, rhetorical move, which is like, look, like, uh, you know, where were Nixon's people on that grass, you know? I don't know. We haven't been told. I have no reason to think so. But right. like, we, we need to ask answer this. We got to ask these questions. It's like, well, yeah, asked and answered. Like, like nobody is, when did that, like, these are these claims, like, this is why with the Hunter Biden debate that we've been talking about, like, it's so hard to keep up. It's like, okay, now I've got to, now we got to explain that there weren't FBI <laughs> agents on the plane. And what if there's an FBI agent who happened to be traveling between one of these cities? I mean, this is like Washington, D.C. was one of the cities they were going to. Like, yeah, maybe they're like the January 6th thing is amazing to me because it was the U.S. Capitol at a time when there was heightened alert. So they're almost like trying to penalize you for the fact that they're on any given day. They're going to be law enforcement with guns stipulated. Right. Never mind that. Yes. Like, I would hope the FBI had a presence there because you had people traveling from multiple states conspiring to overthrow the democratically elected government that we had. Uh, you'd imagine you'd have FBI agents there, but they want to somehow paint that as a conspiracy. It's like almost like the Oklahoma City bombing. And you'd be like, well, I want to know if there are FBI agents there. I'd be like, well, it's the FBI headquarters in Oklahoma. They'd be like, well, that's interesting, isn't it? And I'm like, yeah. well, yeah, I don't know. What What are you trying to say? <laughs> Like, it's crazy. It's, well, it's like hard to follow. You can hear him as he starts to get into it. You can hear his voice change to where he starts to realize, okay, I said something that's not useful there. And I bet that John's facial expression changed. Yeah. And that's why now, okay, but now, so Salty tells us there's a second clip that I haven't heard. And now I'm just curious and I, I don't even know what it is. Let's just hear the second clip. I think it's interesting to compare and contrast 9-11 and January 6th. Oh, yeah. I, I don't think they belong in the same conversation. I'm only bringing it up because it was... I am not making the comparison. I think it's a ridiculous comparison. I'm not comparing, but... but I'm saying that I brought it up only because it was invoked as a basis for the Gen 6 Commission. Of course. What I'm saying, though, is that I think Democrats and Republicans would agree... 9-11 is a day that's like Pearl Harbor Day where there are good guys and bad guys and America was attacked. I mean, I, 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 would, take, I, I would take the truth about 9-11. I mean, I, I, I am not questioning what we've got. This is not something I'm staking anything out on, but I want the truth about 9-11. Okay, so that's pretty clear there at the end. Um, that, Did so you this say is like, I want or I... I want. I, I want the truth about 9 /11. I want the truth about 9-11. So... It's interesting because uh, this is him, I think, wanting to flirt with the far-right conspiracy stuff, yeah. but wanting to be so clever that he doesn't actually yeah. um, espouse any of it. And this the is truth the is, is that it's- Holly stuff. Yeah, this is the Holly exactly. stuff. Exactly. This is the kind of well, stuff- Well, and there's Holly. a limitation here because as talented as Vivek Ramaswamy is, and he is, I mean, this is a guy who came out of nowhere to be a, a good, somewhat legitimate presidential candidate, right? There's no question he's got some skills here, but we're seeing a limit of his skills because you, you are trying to touch the third rail without touching the third rail, and you're just not good enough yet to pull it off. Yeah. Um, 
and yeah i mean i try to think of what the like if, if i'm ravi gupta like candidate for the gop nomination and i want to flirt with trutherism which is a statement i never thought i would say for many reasons but like the idea that 9-11 trutherism is now a republican i mean somewhere george right. w bush has got to what the hell cheney has already gone there it's amazing to see mm -hmm. but like these people who like 9-11 was their like i mean giuliani for i mean we just talked about giuliani yeah. what is wrong with these people like how do you do this in the way that like so i think they're they're smart and evil to do the whole weaponize their people against the government now because they know that one of the biggest threats to them are all these government officials who've had to interact with trump who are you know generals and fbi agents and all these people who are kind of like figures within law enforcement and the military which were previously unimpeachable within the republican party and so trump has pulled off an absolute like miracle in turning the republican party against law enforcement and in the military right that's crazy mm -hmm. right in and mm -hmm. of itself but now they're like you know they're like you know you know napoleon trying to invade moscow where they're right. like all right like now we've we're, we're emboldened let's go after 9 11. and i'm like i don't know if there's an appetite for this one like i would hope that the american people to the extent this get ever becomes relevant which god hopes i god hope it doesn't and i imagine christy will have some stuff to say about this today as will pence but like but what do you say like i mean they're just like 9 11 is a weird one because previously vivek has said oh i was just raising questions about the saudis that's what he had said previously mm -hmm. when he was asked about uh 9 11 trutherism on a podcast and he kind of like tried to spin it and be like, oh, the 9-11 commission was never fully truthful about the Saudi role in it, um, which is a, in a, a convenient way to frame it. But there's no reading of what he said that has anything to do with the Saudis, right? No. The Saudis have nothing to do with how many FBI agents were on the plane. And the follow-up question that John should have said was, let's say that there were. Yeah, what, what's the point? What are you trying to say? Are you saying that the FBI orchestrated 9-11? Vivek, of course not. Then why the fuck are we talking about this? <laughs> right. Like, like, and, you know? Well, and the big miscalculation that he made, that Vivek made, is, look, the way he said that stuff, where he constantly covered himself, I'm not saying that, that'd be ridiculous, that works with most people. Right. That doesn't work in the Atlantic with John Hendrickson, because, because as somebody who's had a profile written by John Hendrickson of them, in, in which you are quoted, right. uh, I can tell you that like John Hendrickson is a guy who he goes, he spends time with you, and then he writes what it was like to spend time with you. Right. He, doesn't, he doesn't limit himself to you know the tricks. Like if you try and be tricky with your quotes, he doesn't care. He's going to write what he thinks you were saying. And that's right. what he did, clearly. And then Vivek was like, no, that's not what I was saying. And but he, he was also like, well, quoted him directly. Said. Like he didn't just yeah. say, hey, this was my impression. There was an article at CNN did where they bolded the transcript from Vivek, and it yeah, was word for word. Well, and he's going to ask follow-up questions. You say something right. where you think he covers it, John's going to be like, wait a minute, you're making a comparison. That, you know I mean? Like, that's, but this is the thing. That's what he does. This is the thing that for Majority 54 listeners that I think you'll find interesting. is because you've probably had the experience that I've had, which is that some of your relatives, your Trumpist relatives, are slippery. And you don't have the benefit of John Hendrickson to be recording mm -hmm. these conversations and transcribing them. So often, and I've got some people in my life, I won't mention them, that I will be in this conversation with them and they'll say something crazy. They'll dangle it or they'll say it explicitly. And then I'll be like, oh, well, 
well, okay, well, what? And then I'll read it. I'll basically read it back to them. And they'll be like, no, I wasn't saying that. And I'll be like, no, you just said that. <laughs> and it's like, and it's like crazy. Uh, okay. Well, uh, we should take a break. Okay. Yeah. We have more. Ads. We just got so into that. We've got it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, let's take a break for some ads and then we'll talk about Jason, why we've become so mean as a society and as a country. Uh, exciting conversation when we come back. <laughs> all right. So our next partner, as you know, is a longtime favorite of the podcast. It's AG1, the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. I've been drinking it every day long before they've been a sponsor of this podcast. And I gave it a try because I was sick of taking these like handfuls of pills and all these powders. And even then I wasn't getting what I needed. Uh, I drink AG1 first thing in the morning. And if I have a really active day, uh, I'll take it again, like if I have to work out or if I'm traveling or anything like that. Uh, and it's great. It's a great bang for your buck financially because it replaces so many of those supplements, but also for your time and just your your digestive system. You just don't have to take as much stuff and it tastes awesome. It's just a little scoop. You put it in water. Um, and to me, I actually take it instead of my first cup of coffee. Uh, and that has other benefits like you know preventing dehydration, et cetera, or that steep drop off of energy. And really what you're getting is a multivitamin, your minerals, your pre and probiotics for your gut health, adaptogens, and it's all in this one green blend. So if you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1 and get your five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Those travel packs are super helpful because that's what you take on the road with you. I take them all the time with me. I have a whole box of them. So go to drink AG one.com slash majority that's drinkag1.com slash majority and check it out all right jason i sent you this article yesterday that david brooks wrote and look a lot of people love to make fun of david brooks and he he makes it easy sometimes uh but he's you know i i think of him the way you, you i think of some like an uncle you know he's been around for a while and you know, he's he's a figure kind of of the old right in the way that like George Will was like probably a little bit before him, like when the New York Times op-ed page really mattered. And but he's like quietly written some books uh, that are kind of apolitical in certain ways, but maybe touch on politics that I think like were underrated. One of them was this book called The Second Mountain, which um, I, I tried to get my father to read once and didn't work but the he wrote this piece in the atlantic and we're giving him a lot of atlantic shine this time i mean good yeah. publication but he wrote this piece about why americans have become so mean that uh we're not gonna have enough time to do it justice but i thought it was phenomenal and i sent it to you yesterday what'd you think about this piece uh, i loved it and I, you know and david brooks is a guy who like he can be a little preachy and he can be and look he's an He's an older conservative white guy who sees the world through the lens of an older conservative white guy. And that's one of his limitations. He seems in reading this to be increasingly aware of that limitation and is calling it out somewhat uh, consistently in the article. But he also, in reading the article, is a guy who clearly has spent several years thinking about moral education in America and reading a lot of current and old philosophy about the value of moral education and moral institutions and how societies get to a point where they stop caring about each other. And you and I have talked sometimes on this podcast, but often about my strong feeling that we need some version of national service in the country. He alludes to that in the article, but he goes into all sorts of stuff that I had not thought about previously 
in making the case that you know creating certain habits and creating um, certain routines in life in our education does lend people to think less exclusively about themselves. And I think he makes a really compelling case in the article. Yeah, he, he gives like this. I, I'm like a sucker for like a deep history that connects like the past to where we are today, even if it's a little bit of a stretch. And he does like this whole like post-World War II, there was like the Reinhold Niebuhr types who responded to World War II and essentially were like, our problem was we just didn't have the right moral for foundation and we need to like basically embrace one. It's almost like a top-down approach. And then you had the humanists who were like, actually, the problem was hierarchical thinking at all. And what we need to do is embrace the individual and actually free ourselves from institutions and hierarchies. And 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 Brooks was like, that's basically like the turning point. And then since then, a lot of things have happened. Technology, increased political polarization, and you can come up with a whole bunch of the the disintegration of institutions, which is obviously related to the humanists, but also just the limitations of those institutions, like the Catholic Church being a good example. And all of this has kind of come to like a crescendo today where we are as he says mean, but it's also, I would say, selfish and self-centered than we've ever mm -hmm. been before. He says that we're naked and afraid and we're vulnerable narcissists. And he he describes a vulnerable narcissist the following. He says, vulnerable narcissists are more common figures in our day, people who are also addicted to thinking about themselves, but who also feel anxious, insecure, avoidant, intensely sensitive to rejection. They scan for hints of disrespect. Their self-esteem is wildly in flux. Their uncertainty about their inner worth triggers cycles of distrust, shame, and hostility. And he he couples that description with uh, some data, one piece of data from Ryan Streeter of AEI, uh, who basically says that uh, lonely young people are seven times more likely to, to say they're active in politics than young people who aren't lonely. And then like that participation in politics becomes a substitute for truly like you know, transformative moral behavior, like volunteering in your soup kitchen or becoming a nurse or a teacher or whatever, that like the push of a button on Twitter X, whatever you want to call it, is like a substitute for mm -hmm. true action and true connection with the people around you. And I would say, call me persuaded by this thesis. Oh, I, I thought that was the most important point he made. And so there were, I had two takeaways from it. I texted both of them to you. They were my favorite parts. The first, unrelated to that, is I just, I just loved this part, and it's something I kind of want to take with me and I, as I think about like raising kids, which he says, much of American moral education drew on an ethos expressed by the headmaster of the Stowe School in England, who wrote in 1930 that the purpose of his institution was to turn out young men who were, quote, acceptable at a dance and invaluable in a shipwreck. <laughs> and that's a little pretentious and quite British. Yeah. But like the basic idea of like, we're going to raise people to be able to function in high society and like know which fork to use or whatever. But most importantly, if they come upon an accident, they're going to jump in first. Right. You know, like that, that I liked quite a lot. By the way, I, you sent me that quote. So then I forwarded it on to uh, a bunch of like, I have a group, a friend group. Uh, we call it kibbutzniks, which is the whole other story. But uh, the I'm like the only non-Jew in that text chain. But I kind of uh, guessed from the name. <laughs> yeah, uh, although Suji did it too. But the we were debating who is more likely to be the person who'd be invaluable in a shitbag, and it got it got a little heated. Um, okay, well, a sidebar, unneeded sidebar to this point is that if you go to my Twitter feed from a few days ago, I shared this thing that Brandon Friedman had put up, um, which is a video 
of a group of baboons where one of them is attacked by a leopard and and they all run and then there's one baboon who turns and puts himself between the leopard and all the others Whoa. and and then they all come rallying back to fight with him and Steven Weber uh, who's been on the show um a marine combat veteran immediately in came the middle in of a race his right? point. he's in the middle of a state yeah, house race running for the state senate in in missouri right now people can go find that stephen weber for state senate he made the point about how that baboon is the one guy in the platoon who will go in do the crazy thing fight and rallies everybody else to do it with him so on the you know sort of the sidebar about this kind of thing is that if you go to my twitter feed from the other day and find that it is a truly instructive thing in nature and how people operate in uh in in that sort of situation okay and it to your it made me think of it because it made me look at it and go am i that baboon i'm like i know steven is i think i might be one of the first ones to come running back but i'm not sure i'm that one you know (laughs) anyway so um okay to your earlier point about politics becoming a substitute for moral behavior i think this for this show this is the most important thing in this article is that i think we always need to ask ourselves are we patting ourselves on the back for being against Trump and, you know, we being the Royal we, people who listen to this show us, or is there more we can do? Are we getting out and we knocking on doors enough? Are we bringing this up as an awkward conversation point with people we know socially to actually talk to them and try and convince them? Or are we just retweeting things and commenting on things and saying, well, I'm on the right side of history, so I'm doing enough. Uh, and, Or are we taking action and trying to make our community better? So this is the quote of his that I liked from it. Politics also provides an easy way to feel a sense of purpose. You don't have to feed the hungry or sit with the widow to be moral. You just have to experience the right emotion. You delude yourself that you are participating in civic life by feeling properly enraged at the other side. That righteous fury rising in your gut lets you know that you are engaged in caring about this country. The culture war is a struggle that gives life meaning. So the thing about that is that that can uh, apply to you whether you're on our side or the other side. Like mm-hmm. you could be failing to do good things because you believe you believe in the right things. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's a good moment of self-reflection for people. Yeah, I do think it's a challenge. I think for people living like just in modern society generally uh, is that like you have to often ask yourself like what good are you doing today, right? Like – and and it, and it involves like good politically, but also just generally. And I think about this a lot and thinking about what's the next phase of life and what am I doing? Because I spent my 20s running schools where it wasn't hard to think every single day about what I was doing. And then mm-hmm. I ran Arena where I, it wasn't hard to think every single day what I was doing. And I'm at this phase now where I'm like, yeah, I do media and all that. But like, what what's the impact? Like, and, and what's the next thing, next decision to put you in like a very tactile, uh, you know, you know, just rhythm where you're every day or or you know somehow consistently making the world a better place to use a cheesy term and i think a lot of people are struggling with that question today it's a good example because you know doing what we do having this podcast i every few months sit for a second and think about well you know i could just do this full time like i could i could like have a we could do i could do a few shows a week i could commit to this and like i could earn the same you know, living that I have in my full-time job. And then I remember, and I'm like, oh, and I could, I could have more, you know, freedom to work out at this time or that time. And then I remember like, well, but my day job where I, you know, build campuses uh, for veterans uh, and 
try to end veteran suicide and veteran homelessness. I just know that like four months into doing that, I would just be like, eh, what am I actually doing? And so yeah. I, I get that struggle. You um, would miss it. Like, and I, and I, I, I talked to a lot of my friends about this and like a lot of us are kind of thinking about like, you know, that next sort of phase and all that. And I think like, I think the kinds of decisions you have to make in modern society to fix this problem, which I think we're all dealing with some version of this, like different people are dealing with more extreme versions of this, is you almost have to do things that appear radical to the reasonable person watching it. Like meaning like you have to kind of change your life in a way that seems unreasonable in order to like connect yourself with the people around you. Because I think the inertia in society and the rhythms of society make it easy to detach, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so to, I don't know. Yeah. To drive yourself away from others and to yeah. not make connections. And yeah, For it's, sure. it's getting easier and easier all the time and it's becoming yeah. like the default. So, yeah. All right. Uh, with that, do you have a, a one for us? Do you have, you got a report on life right now? What the heck is going on with me? I went to Maine. Oh yeah. Okay. I went to Maine last week uh, with our mutual friend, Jamie Hodari. Uh, and he's, uh, I won't say more cause I don't, just a lot of news in his world, but he's just like having like a lot of life events and stuff. And um, I, I, I gave him this book called Die With Zero to Read, uh, which is a really good book by Bill Perkins, all about how like you just kind of basically have to sequence experiences in your life in a sensible way so that you could take advantage of what like the moments that life brings you hmm. in the right order. And like a good example that's my example that like would kind of go along with Perkins's theory is that my decision to spend 2020 learning to surf was like a perfect example of what his book would recommend, which is you can't, you can't wait till you retire at 65 to do that. Like, sure. Some people can learn to surf at 65, but like the ideal time to learn to surf is when you're young enough that you can like truly handle the physical demands of it. And actually when you're 65, there are other things that you might want to do that you might have otherwise tried to do when you were 40, but that you could still do at 65 and you should like sequence things properly. And also like the, 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 the sort of title die with zero also has to do with the financial version of that, right? Which is so mm-hmm. many people die with tons of money in the bank and no plan to use it. And of course, like you can have your like kids inherit and all that. But if you were to ask people what they thought they would do and versus what they wind up doing, it's very different. So basically the book kind of set the stage for us like going up to Maine and just like talking about life and having a good time. But my big thing is Maine is awesome. Like <laughs> Maine is great. Over the summer, it's great. Portland, Maine. I was in Booth Bay Harbor, which is really cool. But Portland, Maine is, a, I would say, a city on the rise. I think you're going to hear more about it. It's when you talk to the people in Portland, Maine, and this is the not so fun part of it. Like everything's getting more expensive. The hotels are being sold out and all that. But it caught me by surprise because I'd been to Portland, Maine a few times, including on the Obama campaign in 2008. It's a fundamentally transformed city. Like it is, it is kind of bougie in certain kind of ways. Like it's, I think it's going to become a vacation. It's be- fast becoming a, a vacation destination. Uh, and it's a cool city, but it's like, like it reminds me of Nashville when I moved to Nashville and it was transforming. Like it is changing and it's becoming like a true destination city. I have to imagine as places around the country get hotter and hotter in the summer, Maine is going to do better and better in its summer tourism because it's already so awesome. It um, is a, it's an underrated place. Like I often think of like, where would I move if I didn't live in New York City? Uh, and Maine was always on my list just because I, I think like 
it's beautiful and I spend so much time in warm places in the winter anyway. So you're like, all right, well, what's a great place to be in the summer? Like the weather up there was like perfect in August, but I don't know. That was, that was my story. Um, your wife, by the way, taking up tennis, big deal. I'm very excited yeah, yeah. about that. No, she's, it's, uh, sh- she's been doing it for a little while and she recently decided like, okay, I want to be as serious about this as you are about baseball. And I was like, I am such a believer in the idea of, Age should have nothing to do with how hard you compete at something and how yes. hard, how seriously you take it. Amen to that. And uh, and so I'm like super supportive of that, and I'm and I'm very very excited for her about that. Um, yeah, I guess uh, if I have any sort of big report here, it's just man, it's been so hot. It's, <laughs> See, it's, I saw your Instagram about how the weather is like 98 degrees. It's yeah. it's like so you know we have the Raufi family, um, you know basically become a part of our family from Afghanistan. And people keep saying to me, they're like, oh, well, the roofies must be so used to this. And no, Afghanistan's a desert, man. It gets hot. But they keep saying to me, they're like, this is, what is this? That, you know, that the humidity, the the roofies are like, this is so hot. I'm like, I know. So anyway, that's, that's been uh, sort of our life lately as them. And, And it's just, it's been so hot this week that, and this is the first time I ever remember this happening here. Um, all youth baseball got canceled this way, and no. my baseball, like because, because of the heat. Yeah, because it's just too humid. Like you can't cool off. There's no way to cool off, and it's just dangerous. So, oh my god. Anyway, uh, all right, man. North. Move up north. We'll nah. all move to Maine together. This is this is. I'll die with zero here, probably in Kansas <laughs> City. This is, you know, I'm fifth generation, man. But hopefully, it's a long time from now. So, all right. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, remember to subscribe to Majority Fifty Four wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority Fifty Four and please leave a five star review. Uh, thank you to the Midas Mighty. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. <laughs>